Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. I'm sitting here today, albeit digitally, with Alex McClellan, an integral eye movement therapy practitioner and anxiety coach. Currently, he runs Practical Anxiety Solutions and is dedicated to bringing lasting change to his clients in a short amount of time. He's also on a mission to debunk many bad practices, beliefs and scams present in the self-development industry. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you, Howard. Good to be here, even if it is just digitally. Well, it's it's really, honestly, it's great to have you. Uh, I'm hoping really we can jump straight in and whether you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started and what you do. For sure. So, as you mentioned, uh, the name's Alex and I'm an integral eye movement uh, therapy practitioner, which is a very interesting form of rapid change work. And it uses uh, calibrated eye movements um, along with uh, clients memories or significant memories of um, traumatic events or uh, about specific phobias or anxieties to to enact really um, deep and lasting change Uh, it's definitely sort of the best model I've come across I fell into this whole uh, industry I suppose um, having been someone who had in my own words crippling shyness i was i was terribly shy as a child as, as a lot of people are um which lasted into my into my young adult years and it, at one point it, it was very close to crossing over into social anxiety and i i got help from a from an iemt practitioner i'd I'd been reading about lots of different, you know, ways of, of getting help for this sort of thing, you know, hypnotherapy, NLP, um, CBT, whatever. And and in the end, I, I got talking to somebody who did IEMT, Integral Eye Movement Therapy. And he told me about it and I said, yeah, you know what, let's go for it. Um, let's do it because he was, he was training in it at the time um, and it was still very new. So it was very cheap for me to do and uh, being a young you know much younger man that was good for me and it was it was pretty incredible so you know a lot of my a lot of my issues changed um i i sort of fell back away from this social anxiety precipice as i called it and i uh, sort of back for shyness and i i was generally hell of a lot happier um awful lot better and i ended up um as luck would have it 
being recruited by this company who, who dealt with people who were socially anxious and and sort of helps them develop social skills and it was a it was a job i really enjoyed and had for many years and i, I left that company and i started out on my own working with you know men and women helping them um, getting over their social anxiety and it was very much as a coach um and eventually uh, a few years back I, I decided i wanted to train in iemt because that's what really helped me and i i really wanted to get in at the ground um where these people were concerned because you know i'd be getting all these clients and, and speaking to all these people who had been shy and had been socially anxious and now they were sort of coming to me to to finish off on on their journey or, or learn the skills and the techniques they needed in order to get to where they want to be but some of the stories they were telling about you know how how they'd shake when they were standing up speaking to people or um you know people being sick before meeting new people for the first time and all these you know really visceral reactions and and, and really places of real anxiety where i remember being um i i wanted to work with them at that point so i trained in iemt and uh, here i am really here i am now so I, I, I think it's fascinating and a lot of people I think are bought into the therapeutic uh, world of helping others because mm. perhaps they have a background where they've been through something that they've recovered from. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's really true when, I, when people say that the therapist, people become therapists and people become coaches and uh, because they want to heal themselves. Yeah. Um, physician heal, heal thyself though we're not physicians um i i genuinely believe that's the case uh because in one part you've got um you have a lot of empathy i think for people who, who are in a similar position to where you've been and a lot of people feel that drive and that desire to to help where they can um but also some people uh, some therapists sort of being a being a therapist or being a coach is in a sense their therapy um and it, in some cases it's what they then base their new identity around um so actually the the, the process and the lifestyle of calling yourself a coach or calling yourself a therapist actually becomes a therapy for them um which is very interesting when you meet that sort of when you see that sort of situation developing yeah i i mean one one thing that strikes me is is there a, an issue with people becoming therapists because they're, they're using it as a way of trying to heal themselves? Or should we have healed ourselves first and then move into it? The thing is, one's never truly healed or one's never fixed or one's never finished or one's never there. I think that's something which everybody recognizes um, and run away from the person who says they have all the answers. Hmm. Um, so should it be a problem? Maybe, maybe not, I suppose. It, it depends whether they can do the job or not. Um, though I think I've, I've worked with um, coaches more so than therapists because of the difference between two of them. These are life coaches or social skills coaches or whatever they want, you know, whatever they are. Um, but I've actually worked with a lot of coaches in that sense who have become coaches after very quickly after having been let's say shy or socially anxious or having had a, a fear of whatever hmm. um and they these people have, have become coaches as a, in a sense as as a therapy for themselves and in in that case because it's so quick they haven't 
they haven't necessarily been off perhaps operating well or effectively um but it also leads to more problems for them they you know they develop things like imposter syndrome and and, and can actually develop a, a different sort of anxiety um because they're in this new position so in answer to the question or taking a long route to an answer i don't think it matters too much as long as the person can do the job and you know if they've sat you know if they've studied and they've sat the the test and the, and the exam they need to do and they've completed the coursework and they've got the certificates and and you know they're good at they're good at their job then i i'd say it doesn't really matter um the the issue is if somebody's sort of doing it very quickly after having let's say got over something or or, or out of therapy or out of coaching and they're not fully prepared for it and uh, that's probably where the issue lies i would say going back a, a second alex you mentioned uh, when you talked about how you got into this that you were shy uh, and you mentioned almost verging on to, to social anxiety um and i'm just wondering um, how do you define the difference between shyness and it actually being classified as a, a social anxiety where's where's the crossover where's the line for you well for me the line is the definition of social anxiety um as described by the diagnostic and statistical manual um if or dsm if you don't know what the dsm is it's it's a volume it's a tone you, you could say it's a tone that's produced uh, primarily by the american psychological association um or psychiatric association i should say which defines all the criteria needed for an individual to be classified as having a certain disorder and social anxiety is a disorder listed in this manual um, or social phobia so for me it's whether or not they're meeting this criteria you see the thing is somebody can be socially anxious without being shy um, big big indicators of someone being socially anxious is obviously they're beating themselves up about having this anxiety um, the anxiety is prevalent throughout um, whatever the situation is it can be specific so I work with a lot of people who um, have anxiety about public speaking and you know for whatever reason or or about meeting new people or whatever it is but the point is the anxiety is there but it's it can be debilitating um, it can prevent them from you know functioning um, there has to be a it has to be actually i think it's in one of, it's one of the criterion points um for to be defined as having social anxiety disorder uh, it has to cause personal d distress and the impairment of functioning in one or more areas of that person's life so you know for instance kids dropping out of school because they're so anxious they can't go to class or or people having to leave work because they're so anxious they can't fulfill a part of their work role this is social anxiety shyness we all sort of understand what shyness is you know you're perhaps a bit introverted a bit quiet a bit reclusive and yes perhaps a little bit nervous about social interaction and meeting new people but you see all of that's very normal um and some people will be shy in some situations and very extrovert in others whereas social anxiety is uniform it's it's prevalent everywhere prevalent to either the specific situation or or everywhere um and it's distressing and it causes this this impairment this functional impairment and there are other um criteria i think there are about 10 criteria uh in the dsm for social anxiety so that's where the that's where the line is <laughs> do, do, do you find that there are people who will come to work with you um who perhaps are shy but 
either other un, uh, people who aren't qualified to make or give the label social anxiety have labeled someone who is actually functioning who is fine who is just shy who is just an introvert but they've given them a label and that that's where the problem lies well in i'm i wouldn't say it's where the problem lies but yes i get a lot of people coming to me who are saying i'm socially anxious okay that's fine um, and I, everyone who wants to come and work with me, I make them fill out a form and, and we have a, an informal Skype conversation where I go through it and I speak to them. Uh, now, I should, I should say I'm not a psychiatrist. Uh, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm an integral eye movement therapy practitioner. So even though I work with social anxiety and people who have social anxiety, I'm still not, I'm still not qualified to make the, make the call or make the decision of whether they're socially anxious or not. I can't make that diagnosis. So what I can do is I know the definition. I've taken it upon myself to know uh, the criteria for social anxiety disorder. And if they are very worried about it, then I say, look, this could be something you have. I'm not going to say one way or the other. Um, why don't you go see go see a doctor? We're in England. I'm based in England and London. We have an NHS. It's free. Uh, go take advantage of it. See if you have this, and if you do have this, then come back to me, and we can work on it as social anxiety. Um, but if not, a big part of it is helping them. Isn't me turning away their business, but it's about, or you know, or, or refusing their help. Um, but it's me saying, you're not socially anxious, you're shy, or or you're nervous in a social situation. And I think, in a way, being worried about being shy or or being shy. Um, is a bit hard for people to take. They'd rather be socially anxious than shy because having social anxiety is a problem and you need to get treated for, you know, for social anxiety. Mm. You see a therapist about social anxiety. Um, you don't see a therapist about being shy or you don't see a coach about being shy. Um, and I think that's possibly where some of the problem lies. You know, people self-diagnose as being socially anxious because they get anxious in social situations. It isn't the same thing. Um, and therefore, you know, they've labeled themselves and they can feel a little bit better about going and seeing a therapist or emailing someone. There's no problem with being shy. Um, there's nothing to be embarrassed about, about being shy and, and wanting not to be shy in certain situations um, or wanting not to be as nervous in certain situations. Um, but I think that's something which you need to point out to people is going, to, you, you're not meeting the definition of social anxiety. You are shy. And sometimes people go, you know what, that makes sense. And when you explain that actually it's fairly normal for you to feel a certain way and it's normal for you to be a little bit nervous about speaking in public um, or, or meeting new people, they go, actually, I'm, you're right, I'm, I'm fine, I'm, I'm, I, I am just shy, but I'm okay with it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, so if, if someone comes to see you mm. and they have something that they wish to change mm. in their life, yeah. Presumably, and as you know, I've interviewed um, uh, previously an, an IEMT practitioner yes. and trainer. Um, it seems that part of the process is to take away or, or change the way they're, they're, they're processing it, mm. uh, a, a bad memory, a bad mm. trigger event through the movement of the eyes. Therefore, if that's what we're going to do anyway... Is there an argument to suggest that it doesn't really matter what we label them as? That's it's a very fair point to make. The the place I come from, why I go through this with people, and why I want them to understand what I'm trying to do is 
there's no if somebody wants to change and they've got a problem and they don't want to feel this way that's absolutely fine but sometimes what people are doing is they're coming to see a therapist or, or they're coming to see a coach um because they want validation for feeling in a certain way hmm. um they want they're a little bit shy they want to they want it to be a big deal they want to be um part they so they want to be socially anxious and they, and they want their shyness validated um, and their behavior validated, I suppose, uh, is a way around that. And one thing that is, I, I believe is important is not really just taking people on for the sake of it. And here's the thing, we're, all, we're therapists, but, you know, also this is my this is my job. So who am I to turn down? Um, a client who really wants to change themselves, but I feel real, I do feel rather uncomfortable about taking somebody on, um, essentially under a false pretense. Essentially, um, when you know they're they're saying I'm re I'm really socially anxious and this and that and the other, they're not actually socially anxious. Um, and if the only reason they want therapy is because they think they have this massive problem, but actually they don't, um, it might be more, it might be better for them to just get some coaching and, and just learn a couple of um, skills or a couple of techniques and get a bit of life coaching or analyze a lifestyle or whatever, um, rather than seeing me. Um, and there's, this, I just think it's a little bit of a responsibility a therapist has to have going, does this person really need this if they want it, if i've explained this to them and they still want it fine um but is this something that they need and i think it's i think it is important just to to educate people before they make that decision i i'd rather somebody make an educated and informed decision um rather than than not have one uh, rather than have misinformation because ultimately if i'm speaking to them and they're going, oh yes, I'm socially anxious, and this and that and the other. I may not decide to take them on as a client. They may not. They may decide that they don't want to work with me, which is fine. Um, but if I send them back out there, and they're going, yes, I'm socially anxious. I'm socially anxious. It is very easy for them to be. I don't want to say the, you know, the term preyed upon, but preyed upon um, by therapists or coaches who who may not have the best of intentions and may keep them on a hook and and you know and, and essentially take advantage of that need to be validated for a condition um or essentially you know not really treating them properly uh, and working with them properly as as they should be worked with so i think that's where it comes from yeah ultimately if they if i explain all that and they still want to work with me fine um and it doesn't really make a difference um to the to the process of the session it might make a slight difference to to how i how i do the session after for instance and the aftercare mm -hmm. i do um but i think it makes an awful lot of difference for the client tell, tell me one thing that you mentioned um that i know is important to you is that you're on a mission to debunk many bad practices beliefs and scams uh, that you see as being present in the self-development industry Mm. Um, you also mentioned in one of the rapid fire round answers uh, this idea that, you know, we should be just, uh, you know, very positive, uh, overwhelmingly positive as being a bit yes. of a myth, something that, you know, is no, no longer something that you hold true. Um, yeah. is, is that all tied in with uh, this mission that you're on? And I'd love to hear more about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So, as I said, I. I was very shy and I was very socially, I was bordering on socially anxious. Um, and 
before I got IEMT and um, and actually for for a brief period of time when I was when I was sort of wrapped up purely doing this social anxiety coaching, um, this big, very positive movement started and uh, and was gaining a lot of momentum and and you know I was naturally it was something I was a little bit caught up in especially before. I, I got my issue sorted and I was still very shy and I was really, you know, quite unhappy um, with, with a lot, a lot of things were going. And when you're in that state um, and you are quite vulnerable um, or, you know, you're, you're very unsure, it's very easy to be swept up in this whole, yeah, if you just, you know, if you ask the universe it will provide because the universe cares about you or whatever. Um, law of attraction, dangerous uh, at its worst, m- a bit marshmallowy or cotton candy-ish at its best. I like to refer to the law of attraction as cotton candy self-help. It's, it's, it's very sweet and nice, but there's no substance to it, is there? Um, and, that, and so it is very tied in because it preys upon people who are very vulnerable and and who are really desperately wishing something was different, desperately wishing they could be better. Uh, and of course, you know, somebody comes along and say, hey, you're perfect just the way you are. You need to love yourself. If you're authentically you, uh, everyone will like you or you'll get everything you want. You can achieve anything. Uh, you just need to visualize it really strongly, be absolutely positive, and it will come true and you will get everything you want because you deserve it. Mm. Uh, And that's the message and that's this overwhelmingly positive message I rail against because that's not true. It's just not. The universe doesn't work that way. The universe does not care. It's not conscious. There's nobody coming to save you. Um, You're not amazing. Nobody is amazing. I know zero amazing people. Um, but I know people who are good at what they do, but I know zero amazing people. Um, and the chances are everybody out there listening to this knows zero genuinely amazing people. Um, but you, but that's not a problem. Um, amazing itself as a definition is something that you can't almost, you almost can't believe it's happened. That's what amazing is. I don't know how many people, you know, like that or, or, but it's, it's just wrong. Um, and I think it's much more healthy for people just to focus on being better, on being good at something, um, of of getting over an issue and then finding something they want to be good at and working and becoming good at it and deriving value um, in themselves and their self-esteem from tangible things rather than asking a supposedly benevolent universe uh, for help. Hmm. Um so that's what I rail against, and uh, I I made this switch um, a few years in, sort of my coaching journey because you know I'm I'm now seeing a lot of people who are in the same vulnerable situation I was in, um, and and not getting any better, uh, and and dedicating thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to this sort of stuff, and and not really producing anything but deliriously involved almost like a cult um and and when you see that sort of thing you you just you can't really abide it anymore well i'd like to add in and i I don't often do this but i would like to add in um there's a a particular book that comes to mind um that i certainly recommend to my listeners if you're interested in this kind of thing it's a book by gabrielle uh, ottingen called rethinking positive thinking um and 
it, it seems to tie in quite nicely to some of the themes, that, Alex, that you're talking about uh, here. Uh, and one of them being this idea, she talks very eloquently about people imagining, you know, getting swept up in positive thinking. And they imagine so vividly, you know, what life is like when they have already got whatever they want, that it becomes quite demotivating because mm. they now know don't need to do the activity to get the feeling of having achieved it. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and and that sort of leads people to inaction because mm. they believe if I visualize it, then it'll come about. And it's, it is just very wrong. And I don't know about you, you, if you've, if you see this, how, but I, on my Facebook feed, when I go on Facebook as, as a coach and as a therapist, you naturally have other people in that world in, in your, zeitgeist in your circle and so you see updates from them and i i see every now and then i see people posting things like i you know i work with clients to make them truly unstoppable or unshakable confidence or or that sort of thing um but you know true true being the truest version of you and accepting love into your life and all and all this sort of stuff and i i just read it and i go oh God, these poor people who work with this person, um, you know, or these people, and it's just—it really is a very, very dangerous um, mentality for people to get into. So, this thing that, that you rail against—I uh, mean, you mentioned the rapid-fire round as well—that this idea of uh, being authentic is n- not quite mm. all it's cracked up to be. No, because I challenge anybody to know what's really being said by being authentic um and the conversations i've had with people about this and i do get clients coming to me and they'll and i ask them usually to i ask them a few things and i ask them things they'd like to work on um which is normal i suppose for for anybody to ask and i i say I, i also want them to write down what life would be like if they didn't have the issue and if somebody says to me I would be I would be being authentic um, with everyone, and that that always confuses me. And I go, what do you? And I speak to them. And I go, what do you mean by being authentic? What do you mean? And they just and and they can't really answer the question. Um, they say things like, yeah, just just being authentically me, and just saying what I want to say. So I say, so you're not. You're, you're not saying things that you believe in right now and you're not saying what you want to say right now. Well, no, of course. And they, you know, they go, well, no, of course I am. But I mean, you know, I'd just be able to do it all the time and I, I wouldn't feel bad about the things I say. I go, okay, well, why do you feel bad? And they just don't understand. Um, and it's this idea and eventually you get down to it and what they'd like to be able to do is be the same person, um, the same ideal, outgoing, confident person they imagine in their head with this visualization um, and they'd like to be that person with everybody all the time without truly understanding uh, that you are a different person with every everyone in your life. Um, you have a different mask for every single person in your life. You have a different face. Um, you have a different personality and a different type of interaction and relationship with your parents than you do with your friends at school, than you do with your friends at work, than you do um, with your partner, uh, than you do with your golf friends whatever it is but you've got a different face and a different personality and a different relationship with all of them um and this idea of being authentic and and becoming this one size fits all universally loved and accepted person uh, who is always confident and always 
fun and, and doing whatever they want to do. It just doesn't exist. Hmm. Um, and that's why I rail against it. So it sounds like there's a real uh, thrust in your work uh, around, and I'm not sure whether you would agree with the term uh, outcome, but, but setting some, I would say, realistic, achievable goals without getting too carried away with, oh, after one session, you're going to be able to climb Mount Everest and live the life of your dreams every moment of every day. Yeah, I don't agree with guaranteeing a client an outcome. Um, it's irresponsible because you're selling the clients something or you're selling the person something which, in all honesty, it may not happen. Um, I, I have a fairly high success rate with, with my clients. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it, but by no means is it 100%. So, of course, I'm not going to guarantee an outcome. And what I like, what I like clients to focus on and, and what I want them to learn to do is just think in real terms what their life would be like if they didn't have the issue. What would they be doing? Um, because that's how they're going to measure change. Um, a lot of, uh, I see a lot of coaches and a lot of therapists selling feeling. You're going to feel very confident. Well, that's good, isn't it? I wonder what being feeling confident all the time is like. Um, but what does that mean? What's that? What? what does this new confident person do that this current unconfident person doesn't do? Um, for a start, by knowing what that is, it, it helps direct the therapy session and it helps direct the aftercare I do. Um, so, but I, no, I don't believe in setting these feeling-based outcomes. I don't really believe in setting in many outcomes in general. I want them to look for evidence of change. Mm -hmm. um, that's the important thing for me. And I want that change to happen. That's what's important. What, what they do afterwards is, is, is very much down to them. And I make sure that they've got all the tools and techniques and support they need to do that. Um, but you're right. I try and get them away from the feeling. So how specifically do you get them to pay attention for the evidence of change? Well, with IEMT, uh, it's a very good example of an evidence-based treatment or an evidence-based um, process, change work process, because I'm always asking clients to rate, essentially rate their feelings, rate these sensations. Mm -hmm. So uh, I usually do it out of 10 and I've got to make sure I'm very specific with them. Um, you know, they, for instance, if I'm working with a client and, uh, <clears throat> and we're working on a specific memory and the, and the feeling of that memory uh, you know, is, is embarrassment or shame. I get shame quite a lot. And in this memory, the, the feeling of shame is, an, is a 9 out of 10, and it's very vivid. Uh, I, but I'm noting all of this down. I'm noting how this memory is represented, how they experience it, how strong it is um, out of 10, and I get them to rate it, and it can be 9, 9.5, whatever. Uh, and then when they come back to see me, yeah, we do the work, and we test it, and then they come back to see me, and, and we test it there so I can keep track of the change. Um, but I'm also training the client to look for that change. And one thing I do is when somebody's anxious uh, around a particular situation or they get anxiety in general, um, I one exercise I like to get them to do and to train themselves into doing is rate their anxiety and look at it logically. Anxiety isn't a feeling. It's a, it's a state of arousal. It's a, it's a state of being. Um, but you can still rate it and you can still measure it. And, and we know when we're more anxious and we know when we're less anxious. So training them to... You know, when they feel that anxiety coming and they and I say to them, you know, I want you to start as soon as you feel yourself getting anxious, rate it out of 10. And they 
So when they're on their own, they go, right, it's a 6 out of 10, it's a 6 out of 10. And then it will go to a 7, and then it will go to an 8, and then it will go to a 9, and it could even go to a 10. Um, but the point is, after a period of time, because they're monitoring it, they notice when it decreases, and it's about... Um, and that's a really nice way into training people into looking for evidence of change. Uh, it's just by something as simple as monitoring their anxiety and how quickly it goes down. Mm-hmm. Can you give me a couple of examples, Alex, of where you have witnessed you know rapid change uh, something that you know many people sitting at home uh, listening to might go crikey that really did that really happen so yeah two examples stick to my mom was a chap who came to me and he had very very bad anxiety um, it was about his health and he was terrified and he, he about a couple of years ago uh, before he came to see me he started developing these panic attacks and an awful lot of bad stuff happened. Um, breakdown of his of uh, the relationship of uh, he had with the mother of his daughter. A um, couple of jobs went, and and his panic and his health panic kept on getting worse. And it was very pervasive fear of dying he had, and and he it was sort of going in the way of agoraphobia. Um, so you know he very slowly he sort of over time stopped going to public places like um, cinemas because he was terrified that if he had a heart attack in the middle of the cinema nobody would help him and he would die um and then he'd stop going to bars with his friends because he was terrified that if he uh, if he had a heart attack there or someone spiked his drink then he would end up dying and this carried on going and he wouldn't go in tube trains and he wouldn't go he wouldn't go on public transport um which and so you know when he came to see me it was quite an interesting journey for him he had to drive an awful long way um uh, find some reasonable parking space somewhere near my therapy rooms and then walk the rest of the way from there um so he had a really big really big phobia and very very big anxiety um and sat down with him and did an iemt session sent him on his way and you do see changes while you're doing the session with people so when he came in he was very hunched over and um displaying all the signs of anxiety and and nervousness and shyness you know hunched over and averting his eyes and and quite quiet and by the end of the session his shoulders had rounded you know fallen back and rounded out a little bit and he was making more eye contact and so i thought i thought to myself well this is good and you know at the end of our sessions together um he he should have some he should you know have made some really good strides but then i but then when i saw him the next week um and you know i said well how's your week been and he said well i came here on the tube which i haven't done in 18 months um and he'd been out with his friends to the pub for the first time ever and he'd been to the cinema and he'd been out to a restaurant with uh his ex who was also the mother of his uh the mother of his child and it was just such a big change and so, so it hadn't, hadn't worked then <laughs> no it hadn't worked at all yeah um it, but it was such a big change from the guy hmm. who'd, who'd come in the week before and you know i said how how about these thoughts of dying because they, they were popping up um in his own words uh, about five six times a day and I said, yeah, how's, how have those thoughts been? And he said, I've had about three thoughts in the whole last week. Hmm. Um, three instances where it, where it had this thought. And it was just the biggest the biggest change. And he, was, uh, he was also, he had the advantage of being a very nice guy as well. And, so, and it was really, really gratifying um, to see that. And, and that was after one session. So after an hour. Um, and he'd started sort of feeling the changes on the way back. But after a week, it was so nice to be able to see that. 
someone once said to me, you know, if you do a session like that and they come back and, you know, there's been significant changes, significant shifts in their experience, do, do they come back and go, oh, my word, this is amazing. Thank you so much. This is just so freeing. And my response was, well, no, even if they experience that, they, they tend not to be as effervescent and as bubbling mm. as that because actually the changes for them feel kind of normal which is what we want and I'm, I'm wondering you know how was his reaction how was he responding to these amazing changes well i i'm completely with you on that and he he was very normal and that was what was nice to see because he came in as i said the first time i see him very hunched over shoulders avoiding eye contact almost shuffling you know but he's, the picture of a very anxious person hmm. um, and, and someone who's very down on their luck. And he comes back the next week and he's walking normally and he's making eye contact. And he's not running around and shouting about how amazing everything is and and uh, all you need is positivity and whatever. But he's, he's, he's just being normal. Um, and that's the point, and this is a point I like to make to all of my clients, is I don't want you to feel very good. Um, that's not the point here. Anybody can stack an, a lot of positive emotions on a pile of shit. Pardon my French. Mm -hmm. um, and the client can walk away from a session going, hell yeah, that was amazing. Uh, and then two days later, they're feeling back to crap again. So what do they have to do? They have to go back to the, the therapist for another hit. Um, but the point being is actually what we want is people being normal and having a nice, stable base to work from. Um, because from that stable base, then you can help them build something very sustainable and very um, and very positive, really positive, actually positive. Not none of this. The world's amazing, and the universe is going to give you everything because you're deserve a, a beautiful being of light, deserving love, and all that crap. Yeah. It's, it's just something genuinely good in their lives that's sustainable and and builds self-esteem and self-confidence in a positive way. So no, he came in and he was perfectly normal. But I experience this a lot with people, and I you know people who i have you know have come in social anxiety or shyness or unresolved issues or tension in the workplace or whatever they come in and they do a session with me and i go how was the week and they go yeah it was good actually and i go so how was that problem how was uh, how was your relationship with your boss in the last week or how uh, how did your presentation go that you had to give and you were nervous about and they go yeah it's fine i mean i'm not sure if it had anything to do with our session but i'm fine <laughs> and i go oh, well okay then fair enough. but in a way, that's what I want. I want it to feel normal. I want it to be normal. And I want them to be normal. Um, we're not looking for this nutter who's bouncing off the walls. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I think that there's a lot there. Um, possibly it strikes me around uh, perhaps the way one considers their identity. Mm. In that, you know, I mean, if you were working with a smoker, for example, I've often said to people, if, if I'm working with a someone over stopping smoking that my goal is not to make them a non-smoker uh, in that if they consider themselves to be a non-smoker they're still too attached to it mm. uh, in that you know I don't play the trumpet but I don't wake up every morning saying I am a non-trumpeter it, <laughs> it would be a little bit strange to be so connected to trumpeting that I would consider myself that way it says something about the importance of trumpeting um, so I, I, I think what, what I'm what I'm saying is if someone is, you know, jumping from the rooftops about how great I can now look someone in the eye when I talk, mm. it's a little bit akin to proudly announcing I'm a non-trumpeter. 
Yes, it it, it is, and I, I I really like that analogy. Actually, I really like that, and I may use it in the future. Um, take it, but, take it. <laughs> but no, it's true. Um, identity comes into it in a big way, I think, and we've we've spoken about identity. But that's the point: is when really what you want is when people have the biggest identity shifts. Um, the chances are they probably won't talk about it that much, which is good because the the part of their old identity they're relating to or worried about is is no longer significant, is no longer important. And I suppose, yeah, you're right, it doesn't really warrant um, mentioning. And that that is a nice that is a nice sign. And I think when people are still jumping around and shouting about it and and stacking this positivity um and almost being obnoxious with how positive they are um it's it's a sign that the the issue isn't really resolved it's almost like they have to remind themselves they're okay yes um that i'm not i'm not anxious i'm not anxious i'm not shy i'm not shy i am confident i am confident i am confident i am worthy of this i am this and this that's not this that's not someone who who believes it. Gordon Ramsay doesn't wake up every morning and go, I'm an amazing chef. He doesn't. He just knows he is. He, he just is a good one. And that's, and that's indicative of a, an identity. His identity is a good chef. He doesn't need to remind himself of it. Uh, and I think that's the, that's the sort of shift you're looking for is when people don't need to remind themselves of it. Um, I think you know that some good work's been done uh, and this person is really ready um, to go and now build something like this life i i ask them about and do the things they want to do um and start displaying those behaviors i think that's a good sign they're ready to do that fantastic alex you mentioned there was another you had a couple of cases that you were willing to share oh well the other one uh, took place over a slightly longer period of time uh, and it was with a woman um she's terrified of public speaking um and she uh, she's based over in australia which is why we had to work over skype and she used to uh, be sick before going on stage. And after three weeks, she gave a couple of presentations on you know, back-to-back days to you know, quite large numbers. Um, the, the, second, the first was a little bit smaller. I think she, she had a, a workshop to deliver to about 15 people. Um, but then the second, um, second presentation she was giving was to about 80 people. Uh, and she kept sailed through it, and she was fine. In there, and there was um, the anxiety was manageable for her, which for the first time ever was, uh, was something pretty special. Um, and then the next I heard from her, she'd gone and signed up to give an actual TED talk. <laughs> so um, it was a again that was something which was gratifying. And it was it was only three weeks, and that's and it's it's very strange that to me three weeks seems like a long time. Um, for change to be enacted because with IEMT it's it is so rapid um, when it occurs but even in the in the context you know the wider context of therapy and, and coaching three weeks is very rapid and a very short period of time and again to see someone do that and someone who'd really put in the effort um, again was very pleasant and, and really nice to see it's interesting that because you mentioned that you know she used the phrase that her anxiety was at a manageable level. Yeah. Uh, and interesting that, that, you know, you mentioned that it it, it hadn't gone. Mm. And I think what's fascinating is um, it was uh, one of the, the podcasts with an interview with Jorgen Rasmussen. And people, if, if they're interested, can go and listen to the full interview on the uh, the archive of the Rapid Change Matters podcast. But he mentioned something 
that, that was interesting and kind of akin to this, which is he's worked with someone who, you know, he feels like it's gone from a 10 on the on the the, the, the sud scale in terms of an issue mm. to like a nine. Mm. And he's there going, oh, well, you know, it hasn't really worked. <laughs> um, and they said, well, no, no, this is the difference between me being able to, to get through my life, get through each day, that small yes. change. And sometimes... Um, you know, there is a, a kind of a pressure some change workers feel that, that you know, unless we've we've done the whole hog in one hit and they've gone from 10 down to zero, then, you know, come on, we were useless. What were we doing? What were we playing? And the reality is, is that even a small change can be a big difference for someone. It can. Um, and it goes back to what I was what I was saying and what I rail against and this this idea which is trying to be sold about you know being perfect the whole time and being 100% confident unshakable confidence that's the phrase which I really hate um, is that that's that's not a normal state of being anxiety is natural it's normal it's a response the body produces um, and you can't control it but the point and it's perfectly normal to be anxious about some things it's perfectly normal to get up in front of a hundred people and be nervous it's perfectly normal to be nervous when you go and meet someone for the first time um it's it, it, it's normal to be nervous in all these situations so in a sense you don't you don't want an absence of anxiety there because that's abnormal and that can be dangerous so yes it is it's about making a change which the client is happy with and you don't want to you don't want to get your vanity wrapped up in it because if you're if as a therapist your your self-worth and your self-confidence is attached to the client going from a 10 on the sud scale to a zero then you're going to be in a lot of trouble um it, it really is about making it's about having the client function normally um and if they can function normally then that's a good job done you know so- so a lot of this is it's not even necessarily around, um, it seems like it's getting rid of anxiety, um, but almost reframing anxiety. It's about, so really what I do uh, is helping a client change, yes, I suppose reframing it. What I call it is addressing a client's schema. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a, there's a very popular theory in psychology and a model um, which is called schema theory. And it's this idea that all the information we have and all like information we have is grouped together and form schema. And I suppose these are like frames. Um, but it's, you know, it's the bits of information about um, you know, all the memories we have of a situation that is like the situation that we're, we're in right now. So if, if you've got a public speaking anxiety, someone will have a schema about getting up and speaking in public. And that schema is made up of all of the information, um, all of the memories of previous public speaking experiences, all of the emotion that's attached to that. And that schema will direct them how to act. It's a cognitive shortcut. Um, it's a guide um, telling them how they're meant to act in that situation. And what I do is I address that schema when it goes wrong. Because if that schema is telling the client, be very afraid, um, this isn't a good situation for you to be in, and it's causing the client distress, then that's what's addressed. And I address that by targeting the most significant memories that make up that schema and if you address those and you neutralize those and you make those normal um, then the whole negative aspect of that just crumbles away which is nice and that gives the client a a chance to develop something more healthy so that's what it's about Um, it's about addressing the anxiety um, and it's about addressing these 
this schema and changing it so that the client's relationship with the situation can become more healthy. And in some cases, that just means that the anxiety returns to a normal level. And in some cases, it means the anxiety disappears altogether, but that's very much down to the client and the situation. Cool. Alex, you mentioned in the rapid fire round that there is no book that you would wish to read a hundred times, which is probably a fair comment. Um, However, are there any, you know, two or three books that um, you would recommend to our readers, our listeners um, that are are good go to places to start doing the kind of stuff that you do? That start doing the kind of stuff I do? Hmm. Well, I'd say probably two two books um one is happy by darren brown i like it i read it when it first came out and i've forgotten most of it but i liked the general tone of darren brown in his writings even though it's not about self-help but i think he's he's a good thinker and a lot of what he says is good um but a book that i i highly recommend for anyone who is interested in therapy or anxiety i suppose um it's a book called anxiety disorders uh, and it's uh, by a woman called Carolyn Deitch. Quite a uh, sexy title there. I know. Well, it's, uh, yeah, Carolyn Deitch or Deitch, D-A-I-T-C-H. Um, and, yeah, the book's called Anxiety Disorders, the go-to guide for clients and therapists. Mm-hmm. And I I picked this up a little while ago when I was first thinking about getting in to, to the therapy side and, and moving on away from just being a coach uh, and it's a very nice sort of introduction to um, the cognitive behavioral um, approach to dealing with anxiety disorders and it's a nice little primer um, and it has some really nice techniques and some nice uh, explanations of of the cognitive process that the brain goes through and and a lot of the key um key parts and, and key things you should be aware of so i, I highly recommend that book um, to anyone who reads it, uh, to, to anyone who's interested, I should say. And when people are hearing this podcast, they like what they're hearing. Um, how can they uh, get in touch with you? Where can they go? Well, uh, Facebook is a very good place. I've got a Facebook page, which I'm becoming more and more active on, and I end up posting a Facebook Live usually once a week, maybe a little bit more, um, about my musings, either on um, either on the the business in general, or you know, giving out advice on how to deal with anxiety and certain lifestyle issues, uh, and that's just facebook.com forward slash practical anxiety solutions, uh, or they can just visit my website, uh, which is www.practicalanxietysolutions.com, and they can even go to forward slash rapid change works uh, if they want to sort of be kept up to date whenever I any whenever I release anything that's sort of relevant to what we've spoken about in this call. Fantastic, even better. Um, Alex, when we first talked about you coming on the podcast, is there anything that um, you'd like to add, uh, you'd like to, to talk to our listeners about, but that I just haven't asked directly? Well, I suppose we spoke a, li- we spoke a little bit about safety behaviours, didn't we, when we had our oh, initial yes. chat? Yes, yes. Uh, I think that's actually quite interesting in around what we've been talking about, and we've been talking about um, you know, how therapists guiding clients to measure change and and a lot of the dangers out there and um that you can get with different coaches and i think safe uh, the idea and the notion of a safety behavior um is an interesting one and i think it's something which a lot of people inadvertently 
um, either ignore or try and treat instead of a problem um, with a safety behavior being something the client's doing to minimize their distress or minimize um, their contact time with something and the big danger of these safety behaviors is that what they usually do is prevent the client from being able to disprove their anxiety on their own um, because a lot of the time when you're analyzing an anxiety or an analyzing a problem a client has it, it comes down to probably a series of thoughts um, and, and negative beliefs about themselves and obviously our job as therapists is to identify them and neutralize them but a very I think a very good thing to do and a good thing to train people to do um, is to be able to address those issues for yourself and find out what they are, find out what those negative beliefs are and then be able to address them in, in a logical and rational way. Um, and so paying attention to a client's safety behavior. So these are things like um, avoiding going, say if someone's got a, you know, public anxiety um, problems, you know, a safety behavior is avoiding going to anything that will require them to speak in public or refusing to give presentations at work or not giving a speech at a wedding. Um, that's Those are classic safety behaviors, avoidance behaviors, but they're equally things like not making eye contact or speaking very quickly or speaking quietly um, or over-apologizing is a big one. And I think it's quite good for a therapist to be able to notice when a client's doing that and to get the client to recognize when they're exhibiting these behaviors because then that helps them self-correct. Um, and that's that's something which is nice and sets the client up for the future post-working with a the therapist. I really like that. Um, and there's a... I love the idea of installing or putting in them little uh, kind of little alarm bells that self-correct. Yeah. And I'm really big on the client learning self-awareness mm-hmm. and, and learning to really to take a lot of personal responsibility and a lot of self-control because a lot of the time and you 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 know you may have experienced this and and therapists who are listening may experience you know may experience this is clients will come along and they'll they'll be what i call or you know what is called at effect um and it's always something else's fault for everything going on in their life and um a, a really good example of this is is one i had the other day is i had a client who was late for a session with me um, and if a client's late for a session, the chances are you'll know whether they're taking personal responsibility uh, and they recognize that they are in control of their, their own actions and their own life and their own thinking is if they admit to being late. Um, but if they're late because they couldn't find a parking space or because the tubes were delayed um, or because there was traffic um, or because they couldn't find where the building was, um, these are all really big indicators to me of someone who who needs a bit of a wake-up call and needs to really take a lot of personal responsibility and identify these alarm bells um, Mm. and identify when they're essentially they're submitting to this rather defeatist attitude Um, i don't know if you've ever experienced that sort of thing but it's something i try and correct well it's it's certainly not my fault if i have (laughs) (laughs) quite Alex, it's been such fun uh, talking, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed. And I think that there's, there's such value in um, going back in it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to editing this one and re-listening. 
Um, I don't mean that. I'm looking forward to cutting it all out. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for letting me talk on and, uh, and uh, meander around some points. But it's uh, no, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. And as promised, uh, we will put all of the links and the recommendations on the Rapid Change Matters website, and there'll be a link to that on the iTunes. Uh, episode guide as well and um, uh, again just a, a quick shout out to all the listeners out there if you've got any questions for Alex or you want to leave any comments uh, you can at the bottom of the rapidchange.works webpage where the uh, the uh, the episode is hosted uh, there's comments and feel free to leave them and uh, I'm sure I can get Alex persuade him to come back and interact with you all as well there um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change works. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.